this particular group of cyber criminals had incredible operational security or what we call OPSEC. At one point, you know, they were creating millions of email accounts to do this spam. My idea is to get in before a breach and prevent it from happening in the first place. Welcome, everybody. This is Tuesday Morning Grind, episode number 52. Today we have Brian Levine with us. Brian is a managing director of cybersecurity and privacy at Ernst & Young. Also did a stint at the Department of Justice where he was investigating cybercrime and is going to share a really interesting story with us about uh, a hacking case called the Bayrob case. It took almost 10 years to solve. Um, Brian, thanks so much for being here. I'm excited to hear about this. My pleasure. Me too. Should be interesting. I actually haven't heard this story before. I was tempted to look it up before this because I knew what we were going to be talking to and like see maybe a prior presentation. But I was like, no, I want to hear it for the first time with everybody else. So um, excited. You told me that this case took over 10 years to solve. Yep. That's um, right. which, which I can only imagine the amount of resources it would take in terms of like investigating for that long. So uh, you promised ahead of the show that you would get into why it took 10 years. So I'm, I'm excited to hear about that. Yeah, well, let me start with that because that is really, uh, really amazing because I, I think people don't realize how complicated it can be to investigate a cybercrime case like this one. Um, and this particular group of cyber criminals had incredible operational security or what we call OPSEC. The security was as good or better than nation states that we're used to seeing. Uh, it was just really impressive, and that's why it took years and years to actually identify them and to get enough evidence to actually extradite them from Romania, which is where they were, and to go to trial against them. Um, but every cyber case is complicated for different reasons. But here, part of it was the operational security. So just to give you a sense of what was going on, these guys, before they would connect to any of the infrastructure that the FBI or any part of the U.S. government could, or individuals or the private sector could oversee, would go through an enormous number of hops such that it was impossible for us to trace it back to them, to trace the IP address of the communication back to them. So this is what typically happened. They had their laptops, and their laptops were all configured the same way. And they were starting in either Bucharest or Brazov, Romania, or other parts of Romania. And the first thing they would do, they would not never use their own internet for their criminal activities. Instead, they had these directional antennas, which we would later seize from their apartments. And they used these directional antennas in order to hack the Wi-Fi of somebody else in Bucharest. And there are millions of people living in Bucharest, and most of them had Wi-Fi. So it could be a different person every time. So they would never start on their own internet. They would always start on somebody else's internet. And then once they were on someone else's internet, they wouldn't just go to the victim's computer or something like that. First, they would go to Tor or the Onion Router, at least once that became available. The scheme started in 2007, so Tor wasn't necessarily fully functional at that point. But uh, eventually, they would go to Tor once they were on someone else's router. Then they would go to one of the computers that they infected with their own malware they created. And typically, they would go to one to three computers that they infected with their own malware. They referred to this as their proxy chain. And then ultimately, after that, they would go to a virtual private network 
that could be you know just a regular commercial VPN. And then only after going through all those hops would they go to their infrastructure. So they would go to their command and control server, which would be hosted at a legitimate hosting facility like DreamHost or AWS or one of the other hosting facilities. They would go to eBay or Gmail or GMX, which they used for email or other parts of their criminal scheme. They'd go to Craigslist. They'd go to Facebook. But none of these sites, whether working with the government or separately, were able to kind of work backwards and figure out these guys that way because it was just it was just too complicated what they established here there were too many hops but that wasn't it um, they also once we ultimately got them we found we got we seized their computers and their computers were triple encrypted so they were all linux based machines and they had a lux partition the Lux was encrypted and their encryption key was just incredibly long. And then even if you got into that Lux partition, they had their entire criminal infrastructure on a virtual machine. And that virtual machine was double encrypted with TrueCrypt and also a encryption program they wrote themselves called SS Encrypt. And they didn't make any mistakes when they wrote it either. So. Even with their assistance, we never really got fully into these computers. They also created their own kill switch program so that if law enforcement ever came into their apartments in Romania, they could press one button and the entire computer would be encrypted. And if it wasn't decrypted in a certain set amount of time, everything would be wiped. They created their own anti-keylogger program so that if law enforcement or somebody else installed a keylogger on their computers without them knowing, it would alert them to that. So this was an incredibly sophisticated group. And it's kind of amazing in retrospect that we were ever ever able to get them at all. Ten years. <laughs> I mean, this is this is a crazy amount of complexity in terms of number of uh, levels of, I guess, abstraction <laughs> from themselves and then custom software. What, can you provide some context? What were these guys doing that the Department of Justice said, look, this is worth 10 years of effort. We're, we're going to catch this group. Were they doing something particularly bad that made it worth it? Yeah, well, in the end, they were. But it all started with one complaint. Uh, and this was one complaint from a normal citizen in the Northern District of Ohio um, who had gone on eBay and went to purchase a car. I think the car was something like $15,000. And she paid the seller over eBay and no car ever arrived. So the police weren't very helpful. They eventually, this woman eventually contacted the FBI. And thankfully, she got a very dogged FBI agent named uh, Special Agent Stacy Lowe, who started the case in 2007 and never let go to it for, for over 10 years. What it turned out was the Bayrob group, as we would come to know them, were do started with something that everybody else was doing in Romania. Not everybody, of course, but it was a very common scheme, which they referred to or we referred to as auto auction fraud. The idea was you put advertisements for a car on eBay. Somebody goes to pay it. You know, somebody, a customer, potential consumer says, I want to buy that car, sends the money, never gets a car. Now, that's the low-tech version of auto auction fraud. The problem with it, of course, is that not everybody's going to fall for that. And uh, eBay is probably going to catch on to it pretty quickly. And so these guys started with that, but figured out a way to do it much better. So what they would do is they placed over a thousand advertisements to sell cars on eBay. 
And to be clear, the Bayrob Group never had these cars. All they had were pictures of cars. And as you can see from this example, some of them were pretty nice pictures. And the prices that they would offer these cars at were, were pretty good. They were a good deal, but they weren't crazy low either. So they wouldn't like uh, raise alarm bells. It wasn't, wasn't too good to be true. It was yeah. like, it seemed reasonable. Yeah, this was on the lower end is reasonable. It's like, all right, let me inquire more. So as you can imagine, if you're thinking of buying a 1968 Ford Mustang on eBay, you're probably not going to just send the money. You're going to ask some questions to the seller. Like, what is the mileage? You know, has it been in any accidents? Do you have a Carfax? Things like that. So the buyer would email questions to the seller. They knew that, that the buyer was going to do this. And when they responded to those questions, they would answer the questions, but they would also attach a file to the their email. And the file was called a Kodak Picture Viewer. And if you clicked on the Kodak Picture Viewer, you could see a slideshow of additional pictures of the vehicle that you were interested in. But what you were not aware of was in the background – this was actually a Trojan. This was actually malware, and it was installing the malware on your computer such that when you went back to eBay, you weren't actually on the real eBay site. Instead, you were on a site that these guys controlled that looked identical to eBay. So, for example, on the new site, they had this thing called eBay Agent Protection. And the idea is if you're going to buy something big like a car – you don't just send the money to the seller. Instead, you send it to a certified eBay escrow agent, and the eBay escrow agent will hold on to that money until you receive the car and you're 100% satisfied, which makes a lot of sense, and people would feel much more comfortable doing that. In fact, there was no program like that. eBay had no agent protection. They had no escrow agent, and in, you were actually just wiring your money to a money mule that would later send it to Romania. So they, it was a different site. And if, and if this you know, got your concern up, if you were like, well, I've never heard of the eBay agent protection, I'm suspicious, you could chat online by clicking and chatting with an eBay um, agent, an eBay customer service agent. And in fact, you would be chatting with this group in Romania and they had templates so their English was perfect. And they were willing to chat with people for hours, seemingly, based on the length of these templates, and eventually they were able to convince buyers that the eBay escrow program was legitimate. So that's what they started with. Now, the challenge, of course, is how do you get the money mules? The money mules are like drug, drug mules, right? They're getting drugs – instead of getting drugs from – one place in South America, for example, to the United States, they're moving the money from the United States to Romania and surrounding countries. So what they did for that was they placed advertisements all over the place. Uh, some of them were on Facebook. This was one from Facebook, but there were other places. And the essential pitch was work from home, which prior to the pandemic seemed like a really great idea to start with, work from home and make some incredible amount of money each month. And uh, you do very little work 
And as you can see from the picture here, you can, you kids can be involved. They can do the work for you right on your lap. Uh, you'll stay fit as that woman obviously is in the picture. And everybody has endorsed this CNN, USA Today, Fox News, every major news service has endorsed it. So these people signed up. These were normal people that didn't think they were part of a crime. They signed up to work from home. Instead, what they were actually doing is receiving these payments from uh, from eBay victims and then forwarding them along to Romania. So they got many money mules this way. And what they eventually realized, what they eventually realized was that they could make a lot of money and they could do a lot more than just this eBay fraud, which they were doing. They realized they could scam a lot of people um, and they can infect hundreds or thousands or millions of computers with their Bayrob malware. And so what they ultimately did was that once they infected one computer, they would identify all of their contacts and use those contacts to send spam, phishing, malicious emails to all of their contacts. And as a result, they got the award. This was an international award given for the number one spammers of 2015 and 2016. Unfortunately, they didn't show up to pick up that award. Uh, if they had, law enforcement might have picked them up. But they did actually get the award. And, and this is what the emails, the spam emails would look like. Um, this is one from purportedly from Norton, uh, from Symantec. And the idea is you get a, a free year of Norton antivirus by installing this file. Of course, this is ironic because not only do you not get antivirus, you get a virus. Um, but tempting, why not get a free year of antivirus? And it would make sense that companies like Semantic might want to offer you a free year to get you hooked. And so you're using it, you know, you just resubscribe. That happens all the time with legitimate companies. This was another one. This is the template. So you could see that um, they could fill it out with different amounts of money. But the idea here is you've received money via Western Union. Just click on the attachment, uh, print it out, take it down to your local Western Union. And, you know, most of us would at least be curious enough to click on the attachment to find out what it was. Of course, it was malware. Some of them were actually much more malicious than this. Uh, one of them was you, uh, it purported to be the results of your HIV test. And you were positive. You had HIV. And it was installing malware on the back of your computer. But uh, obviously, uh, you have to be pretty malicious to let anyone think they're, they have HIV even for a moment just to get them to click on a malicious yes. attachment. So, so these, this is a lot. So there's a, a very sophisticated criminal organization building custom malware. They obviously have ways to process and take payments. They have training programs with scripts to work in call centers, probably have some sort of customer support to deal with the chats. Like, what did this organization look like? Because I've seen like YouTube videos where uh, like they'll, uh, like in India, they have the boiler rooms where it's a call center and people will take the phone scams. Did you guys ever figure out like, what's the nature of this group? How big was it? What was the hierarchy? Yeah, that's a great question. So there were three leaders of the group, and those are the ones that we ultimately caught and tried. And uh, they were all in Romania. They went by the monikers. The lead guy, Bogdan Nicolescu, went by the moniker Master Fraud, uh, which is a great moniker to have until you get caught. As, as soon as you get caught, the, having the moniker Master Fraud dramatically limits your available defenses. You pretty much have to go with um, 
Master fraud? Who's master fraud? I never heard of such a person. Um, there's a – in law enforcement, we refer to the Saudi defense, the some other dude did it defense. And this was a case where they were kind of limiting – he was limiting himself to the Saudi defense. Uh, so he was the lead, lead guy, and then there were two other uh, longtime leaders, Radu McLaus, who went by the Nick Minolta 9797, and Tebeu Dinette, who went by the Nick uh, A Mighty S.A., which we thought stood for system administrator, but later on he claimed those were just letters, but who knows. Um, so there were, those three were sort of the lead, and then there were about five or six others who would sort of shuffle in uh, at different times and play different roles in the group. Um, these were the leaders. There were also others who were involved in the money laundering aspects of the group. And then, you know, you mentioned outsourcing and, and India. Um, at one point, you know, they were creating millions of emails account, email accounts to do this spam. And eventually some of the providers would put capture requirements on to make it harder to automatically create these email accounts. So what they did was they hired people in India to solve these captures for like five cents a captcha. And they would just sit there all day solving captures so they could create malicious email accounts. India had no idea that this was criminal or that they were supporting this at all. Uh, eventually, they actually found uh, a research paper from a U.S. Um, professor who came up with an artificial intelligence way to solve these captures, and they just borrowed it from the paper. And so then we're using artificial intelligence to solve captures. Were these guys like educated computer scientists? Uh, like, do you have any sense how they even got into this business? Yeah, I mean, these were really smart guys. They started sometime. It, it depends on the particular guy, but they started generally after high school, or some of them were in college at the time. In high school, they were all really into programming, and they would participate and they would win international programming competitions. And one of the guys, Tebeu Dinette, before he started in this group, actually did an internship with Google in the United States. And it wasn't until he got back to Romania that he turned, changed, changed his MO and joined master fraud and committing, the, committing crime. So these were very sophisticated guys in terms of their abilities uh, around a computer and programming. And Master Fraud himself apparently programmed in assembly language. So that gives you a sense of how, uh, you know, how into the weeds he was. Uh, he also, for those of you who get this reference, had a Devora keyboard. So uh, we're talking about you know, probably as geeky as they come and as sophisticated as they come, at least in terms of Master Fraud. The rest were of varying degrees. Yes, anyone who uh, switches from QWERTY to do something like the work is uh, <laughs> their their own special breed of tech. Tech, I think. Exactly. Um, so a, a massive amount of sophistication. You guys get the report from someone who was defrauded. Um, special agent becomes, you know, latches onto this thing, investigates it for ten years. How how did you guys even get a foothold? Like how did how did this case unravel? Yeah, uh, it's a good question. Um, so it, we worked very closely with the private sector to unravel this, this mystery. Um, by the time we got you know, this involved, first of all, we got a number of technical agents as well. And I want to mention Ryan McFarlane, who got involved. Uh, he was a special agent with the FBI and was probably the only one that I'd ever met in the FBI who could go toe-to-toe -to -toe with master fraud. And that was a key element of it because at this point, they had infected – 
400,000 computers around the world. They were using them as proxies to conceal their communications. They were doing crypto mining as early as 2013 before anybody else was really doing that. They were stealing credit card information, logon information. They were amassing this massive amount of information and making millions of dollars. But they made a couple of mistakes during the course of the 10 years, really only a couple. And thankfully, uh, the private sector caught these mistakes and was able to work with us to help identify them. So the VPN that they were fond of using here was America Online. And uh, for, for those of your listeners or viewers who are unfamiliar, that America Online is how our grandparents used to get on the internet. Um, it's uh, where the you've got mail phrase originally came from. And uh, what people don't realize about America Online is that it's still around and that it effectively works as a free VPN because it changes your IP address to that of America Online. So it was a good hop for them. But what they did not realize was that America Online had got wind that they were using their service uh, to do all this uh, bad stuff. And they were watching him like a hawk. In particular, this guy was watching him like a hawk. His name is Owen Miller. He's now with Rapid7. And with the help of Owen Miller, they were AOL was essentially doing its own Title III wiretap on these guys, its own essentially packet capture. And what they saw from doing that was that these guys were constantly sending encrypted emails to each other using PGP encryption. And they were constantly emailing each other about the scheme. And these are some of the emails they were sent. And you could see a lot of them were sent or received by master fraud, um, many by a mighty SA, and uh, many by Minolta9797 as well, the three leaders in this group. Um, he was more or less active at different screenshots of time. <laughs> but uh, all of these emails were encrypted. So we couldn't never get to the contents of them. PGP, pretty good. Uh, encryption is pretty good encryption, apparently. Um, but we could see the subject lines and the attachment names for these emails. And based on that um, and what we knew was going on with the scheme at the time, because we were also had visibility into their command and control servers, which were at uh, public uh, data centers in the U.S., like DreamHost, as I mentioned. Um, based on our being able to correlate those, we could see that they were talking about what was going on at the scheme right now, but we just didn't have really any identity information until, until uh, Owen Wilson on May 13th, 2013, caught a something like 90-second mistake that Minolta9797 made. What happened was he accidentally entered in his personal email address while he was on America Online at GMX, and then his criminal password. So he entered Radu SPR, which was his personal email address, and his criminal password, kill66bill. He was not able to enter his personal email account because that was a mismatch. So then he entered the correct email account that he meant to enter, his criminal email account, Minolta9797, and the same email, uh, the same password, and then he was in. But in just capturing this one mistake over the course of 10 years, we had a, a, a nick there, Radu SPR. And if you Googled Radu SPR, you quickly got to only one person 
who was this Radu Bogdan character. This was his Twitter account. And one of the things you can see Radu SBR is right there. Um, he, he was a big skydiver. In fact, when we ultimately uh, arrested him in Romania with the help of the Romanian National Police, he had this exact skydiving photo on all of his phones and on his computer. So that was helpful. But uh, we could see right from his Twitter uh, post here, this was a public Twitter feed, that he was asking whether the YPoolNet uh, server was down or not. Um, and we happen to know that the YPool um, server was a cryptocurrency pool, cryptocurrency mining pool. So basically like a lottery pool for mm. cryptocurrency. Everybody who wants to make money this way joins the same pool and they increase their chances of getting money through cryptocurrency mining. And we happen to know from what we were looking at on the Bayrobs command and control server that they were using the YPool ser server. So just from this one mistake, we were able to identify this guy and for uh, years, this was the only picture we had of Radu McLaus. And so the joke was that if we ever get him, we're, the first thing we're going to do is buy him a shirt because he's gone <laughs> gone for years without a shirt. So what we did was we then went to the Romanian National Police. We sent a formal mutual legal assistance treaty, MLAT, uh, request um, to have them investigate Radu McLaus. And what they discovered was that Radu was having regular encrypted communications with these other two individuals, Bogdan Nicolescu and uh, Tibeu Dinet, um, from uh, Nicolescu's home in Brazov and apartments in Bucharest. So we started investigating these three, but they made no mistakes in terms of their communications that could be attributed to them. The only thing we saw on their actual internet, their home internet, their cell phone internet, anything that could be attributed to them, was that they would go to cryptocurrency mining websites, which was suggestive, but it's not illegal to, to mine cryptocurrency. And there are plenty of people who are not cyber criminals who do that. So that wasn't enough. Um, so we kind of uh, kind of stuck there for quite a long time. In fact, uh, what we discovered was that Danette here um, had a private, had created a private encrypted Jabber server in his apartment. And the three were having communications via that private encrypted Jabber server. But all that communications was encrypted and we couldn't break the encryption. And that just wasn't enough evidence. We even asked the Romanian National Police to do audio and video surveillance in Danette's apartment. But they couldn't even get in because he had this sophisticated German door lock that they couldn't get into without, uh, in a covert, covert way, without notifying Danette that he had been in, they had been in there. So we were stuck for years trying to investigate, seeing if they made any mistakes. And that's when they made their second mistake, which we were really lucky about. And that mistake was that Tebeu Danette, who was the one I mentioned, had done an internship at Google before going into crime, um, decided to visit some friends in Miami and elsewhere in the United States. So we got wind that he was going to be doing this, and we went and we got a search warrant immediately because although there is a border exception that allows one to search uh, cell phones and electronics under certain circumstances at the border without a search warrant, we wanted to be extra careful here because we knew this was critical to a 10-year investigation. So we got a search warrant, and when Danette, there he is, went through 
customs, he was taken over to a secondary location um, where he was basically held for a while. And during that time, uh, agents from the FBI and various other agencies were able to search his phone. Now, he turns out he didn't bring his laptop, didn't bring any other electronics. He was pretty careful, but he did bring his cell phone and they were able to uh, execute the search warrant and covertly image the cell phone. And what we were able to get from that cell phone was Jabber chat logs. So the Jabber program that they were using to communicate with each other in an encrypted way uh, was bulletproof on the outside. But, but once we got the phone, we were able to see these logs and it was hundreds of pages of logs in Romanian of chat. And if we hadn't been investigating them for something like 10 years, this would have all been meaningless to us. But because we had been doing this investigation for so long and knew a lot about the group, we were able to see that they were referring to very specific things about their coding protocol, their specific files, file names. Um, and for example here, a minor forced was a reference to a file name that they created um, called a minor forced, which they would use as part of their cryptocurrency mining scheme to help keep the cryptocurrency miner undetected on a victim computer. So once we had this information, we now felt like we had enough on the three guys. And so we considered arresting um, Danette right here in the United States while he was here. But if we did that, we knew it was highly likely that master fraud would flee, that um, Minolta would flee, and we didn't want to lose the other two. So we let them continue um, throughout the United States. Uh, he was there for a couple of weeks, and then he went back to Romania. Uh, and shortly thereafter, in um, September 2016, we were able to send a indictment and an extradition request. And because we had been working so closely with the Romanians on this for so long, I myself went to Romania seven times during this investigation, working closely with the Romanian National Police. Because we had worked with them so closely, we made the request in 2016. They were in the U.S. within two months of that, two months later. Contrast that with another cybercrime case that's still pending, in which we made the arrest in 2012 in another country, and extradition still hasn't happened yet. So there's a huge variation on what happens when you make an extradition request, but here it went well. Um, so they were extradited in 2016. Um, they stood trial. Uh, Danette pled guilty, actually, um, and was ultimately sentenced to 10 years. Uh, the other two went to trial. can tell you more about trial, but, uh, but it ended, they were all convicted. And I can tell you later about how master fraud and uh, McLaus was sent were sentenced. How long did you guys have the picture of Radu and we're looking at this thing before you actually like made the next step where you could do other investigations? Did you, was that pretty early in the case or when what was the time on that? Well, we were doing a lot of investigations. It just we just weren't identifying them through the investigation. Like we were understanding what they were doing. We had a good sense of how their crime scheme was evolving. The biggest area of visibility we had into were their command and control centers, because as I mentioned, they were in the United States in U.S. data centers, and we figured out ways that we could monitor what they were doing on those command and control centers. They also used them to store a lot of documents about the crime. So we had sort of a complete or the crime scheme. So we had sort of a complete record 
of pretty much everything they were doing. We just couldn't figure out who they were or even once we did have a sense of who they were, get enough evidence to extradite them and convict them. The other thing we were doing during that whole time period is that victims of the Bayrob group were making complaints to the FBI's Internet Crime Complaint Center, which is IC3.gov. So victims would go to IC3.gov. They would say, you know, I paid $10,000 over eBay to a guy who went by the email address, you know, bill at whatever.com, uh, or uh, my credit card information was stolen or whatever it was. And they would make this request on IC3.gov. And they probably thought they were never going to hear back about any of this because, you know, it was probably years in some cases. But ultimately, we got the we had the list of fake email addresses they would use and IP addresses they would use and other um things that would identify them with this particular scheme. And we got a list of hundreds or thousands of victims. We were able to use that to explain to the court what the damages were here, how much they caused, which was millions of dollars worth of damage that we could account for at least. Um, and we were able to identify a number of witnesses who were willing to come testify at trial, uh, which was critical to getting the result that we did. Yeah, You mentioned the public-private partnerships. Like clearly uh, AOL was inspecting logs, it looks like, and captured that that failed login attempt and got the email address. Um, I would think that the big time players in terms of like uh, uh, DreamHost would, would consciously let that infrastructure remain so you guys could investigate it. And then also like all the email accounts that you theoretically could have shut down, but you probably let them open so you could monitor them. Um, T talk about that. Like, wh wh how important was that public-private partnership? Yeah. So there were a lot of players, but the um, sorry, the three big ones uh, who really uh, contributed a lot and who testified at trial. Owen Miller, as I mentioned, from America Online. Um, Liam Omerchu was the lead researcher from Symantec, the uh, AV company who originally identified the Bayrob group. I think he was the one who named them that, the Bayrob group and the Bayrob malware, um, because uh, you know they were robbing people on eBay. So they called it Bayrob. He, he called it Bayrob. And he was watching them the whole time um, to a similar degree that Owen Miller was. He got an enormous amount of information on them, published a lot, uh, provided us a lot, and testified for almost an entire day at trial. Uh, on his full investigation. He even conducted his own undercover operation where he pretended to be a victim of eBay fraud and went through the whole chat and chatted with them and recorded the whole thing. So we were able to play that in real time during the trial, which was very effective. Um, Chris Drake uh, was also super helpful. He is the CEO or founder, creator of Read Notify which is a email program that uh, you, you're probably familiar, your viewers are probably familiar with Outlook receipts. You can ask to send a receipt. Read Notify is sort of like that on steroids. It tells you everything about what the person did on your email. Did they click on the attachment? Did they uh, view the attachment? Uh, how long were they hovering over the email? And it doesn't notify the reader of the email that you were on there. So the group was using Read Notify to send all their emails, although they appeared, uh, all their victim emails, although they appeared to come from America Online or Google or GMX, uh, they all came, route, were routed through Read Notify. So Chris was able to provide us during the course of the investigation with 19,000 emails or so 
from the Bayrob group. Um, and these were with real victims, and the victims were able to identify the emails they had. He flew all the way from Australia to testify um, because he was, he figured out a way to identify which were this group's emails. Among other things, uh, he testified that they were using, if you looked at the email header, they were using a very rare email client called Courier, and it had a particular number associated with it. And when he testified to that at trial, we started looking at all the emails because we hadn't appreciated this. And we realized that all the emails with the victims had this header on them call, uh, that said Courier and with the same number. And then at the very end of trial, we had we had a number of cooperators, and one of the Bayrob, one of the other members of the Bayrob group testified at the trial. And one of the questions we asked him was, "Were you using? Do you remember what email client you guys were using?" And he said, "Yeah, it was someone nobody's ever heard of. It was called Courier or something." And the jury just sort of gasped. You could see it. It was like they suddenly put together the whole thing based on this uh, Courier email client, which, to be honest, until trial, we really hadn't focused on. That's funny. So you mentioned uh, the, the one guy got 10 years, I think you said. What happened to the other two guys? Yes. Uh, so uh, Radu McClaus, um, he got 18 years in prison, um, currently serving. And Bogdan Nicolescu, who was master fraud, he got uh, 20 years. These are very significant cybercrime sentences. Uh, I think appropriate, given how long they were committing the crime and how malicious the crimes were. There were a lot of emails that I, you know, I haven't shared, but that were really quite malicious. Uh, for example, there was one guy who was upset when his car, when he paid for a car and didn't receive his car. Um, so he naturally sent emails complaining to the seller, who was probably Master Fraud. Um, and Master Fraud didn't like this, so he went through the guy's computer and found evidence that alleged evidence that he was cheating on his wife and then just sent all that cheating evidence to the guy's wife for no real reason, but just because he could. So these were very malicious guys and uh, they were sentenced to uh, 10, 18 and 20 years. They're still appealing the sentence, um, but I don't expect them to be adjusted significantly. Brian, this is a very cool story. It's important work. Um, I mean, I think I read a stat the other day that cybercrime is supposed to hit something like 10 trillion. So and it impacts uh, real people. I had uh, sometimes I give a talk and I talk about this lady who had her uh, routing number intercepted during a uh, mortgage transaction. And basically her life savings was uh, uh, fraudulently taken in a, in a similar manner. And that was a tragedy. That was the first time I was, I was ever exposed directly to you know, someone actually like a human being, not a business, like someone, an end user being defrauded like that. So, so what's next? The case ends. I understand you guys are doing some pretty cool stuff on the back end in terms of letting people know about the story. Uh, well, we're just trying to communicate it. Uh, you know, we're trying to get out there and we've been talking to the private sector. It's important that the private sector know uh, how they can potentially help out with these, with cybercrime. Um, and they can help out at all different kinds, different levels. Uh, we're trying to make sure victims uh, and potential victims are aware of IC3.gov, the Internet Crime Complaint Center, so that they do report things. We're trying to encourage businesses to report when they have an incident. Uh, as you know from the Biden 
um, executive order on cybersecurity in May uh, and a variety of things that have fallen since then. The government is becoming more and more active in encouraging or insisting, where possible, that businesses and individuals report incidents so the government can be more effective and can help uh, can help victims in these situations and help bring the bad guys to justice. Now, I myself personally have moved on from the DOJ. I was there for seven years. I served as a prosecutor and national coordinator for all 300 cybercrime prosecutors around the country. Um, but I decided ultimately I wanted to um, try and prevent some of these things from happening in the first place because it's great to come in after the fact and put the bad guys away. It's very personally satisfying. But I felt like I could do more good if I was preventing these things from happening in the first place. So I'm now at EY with a group that focuses on transactions, uh, mergers, acquisitions, divestitures, restructuring, going public and going private. And one of the reasons I really like working in this space is it's one of the times in the business life cycle where businesses are willing to actually think about cybersecurity and data privacy and spend money to improve the cybersecurity and data privacy. The other time is after a breach. But again, my idea is to get in before a breach and prevent it from happening in the first place. So we work with companies that are doing these transactions to reduce their risk around them. Absolutely. We're on the same page, same team. Good stuff. Brian, thank you so much for sharing this story. It was awesome. Um, if you guys like to listen to stories like this from privacy and security experts like Brian, you can check out this podcast on any of your favorite podcast apps. You can also check us out on YouTube. Uh, you can look up Risk 360. We have a playlist called Tuesday Morning Grind. If you're listening to this episode, Brian shared some awesome slides that kind of accompany the story. So I think this is one time I definitely recommend checking out the YouTube video and, and watching this. Um, if you're trying to build, certify, want a security assessment, you can check out Risk 360. That's what we do um, at risk360.com. Brian, thanks so much again. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks for having me, Christian. It was a pleasure.